Let us uh, remember the words of Psalm 118, 22 to 24. The same stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. On this day the Lord has acted. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Uh, I'm still recovering from a mild panic attack when I realized that my notes weren't in this new podium. <laughs> but they were nearby, thank goodness. Where is the goodness of God? Keeping with my Where Is uh, titles for the last few sermons. Where is the goodness of God? Well, the readings today make it pretty plain, I think, that God is good. And uh, His goodness is shown all throughout His story as revealed in Scripture. But looking at the first reading from uh, 2 Kings, the story of Naaman, the captain of the army of Syria, um, the army that had been conducting raids on Judah and Israel, or one or the other, uh, I don't remember, but they were not friends. Uh, they were not allies. Uh, Naaman was the cause of much grief for uh, the Israelites, the Hebrew people. And he had taken captive uh, at least one young uh, woman who was his slave. And once uh, he realized that he had come down with leprosy, uh, that was a, pretty much a death sentence. And, uh, but it was not an immediate death. It was a very slow, agonizing uh, a disease that caused total loss of uh, all your possessions, all your family, all of your relationships, all of your standing. Something hard for us to imagine today. Uh, it was probably one of the most, if not the most feared uh, tragedy uh, that could possibly strike a man or woman at that time. And here he was it says he was greatly admired, it's extremely successful, and suddenly his life is over, as he knows it. And uh, seemingly nothing he can do about it. But this, this slave girl, who had, had been taken captive on one of the raids, uh, you know, she could have just kept her knowledge to herself. She could have thought, well, God is getting... Uh, uh, justice for me. He's taking revenge for me and I'm going to get to watch this this evil man who captured me and carried me off from my family and home and made me a slave by an agonizing death. But uh, she didn't. She had compassion for whatever reason and she told Naaman about Elijah, Elisha, uh, the, the second of the two great prophets. And you can always, if you have trouble keeping that straight, just remember that J comes before S. It's Elijah first and then Elisha. And so this was Elisha, uh, and uh, he had uh, a great reputation for the power of the Spirit of God upon his life. And she told Naaman about it, and he went and told the king of, of, uh, of the army of the nation that he served in 
which is today Syria and I uh, can't remember what it is in scripture. We just read it. <clears throat> but uh, so the king writes a letter to uh, the king of Ju Judea and so on and so forth. And finally Elijah says to the king who was freaking out because he thinks it's a trap, says, uh, just just be cool, I got this. Send him over to see the man of God. And so Naaman <clears throat> gets together a delegation with bearing many gifts and treasures and goes to Elijah's house. Unfortunately, uh, um, it didn't go down the way he expected it to, the way he had uh, imagined that it would. Instead of the prophet coming out and, and uh, meeting him face to face and praying for him, he just uh, sent a messenger, just sent one of his helpers out and told him uh, to just to go wash seven times in the river and not only just any river, the River Jordan, which evidently was despised and looked down on by the Syrians. So uh, Naaman left in a huff and uh, was going to go home bearing his leprosy, but his servants talked him into uh, at least giving it, uh, giving it a chance. And uh, he was probably like the little boy that was made to sit down, but he said, I'm sitting down, but I'm still standing up inside kind of thing. <laughs> But he did go and dip sometimes in the river and he was healed. So we see the goodness of God. And we see that it, this all, I think one of the lessons we can learn from this story is that sometimes the, even the uh, life-altering uh, miraculous things that God wants to do come about in ordinary common ways it's not always by <clears throat> going to the uh, to the apostle or prophet or healing evangelist and uh, having your healing take place uh, in a glorious and, and awesome public setting uh, sometimes the answers to your prayer comes through very ordinary and common ways. And I wonder how often that we miss the opportunity to participate in some incredible, glorious moment because the invitation, or at least the, uh, the course of action that we're instructed to follow comes in such an ordinary way, maybe even a... a it may even sound uh, cheesy or or uh, tacky or whatever adjective you would use to describe something that's uncool, not uh, something you aspire to do when you get up every day. Uh, so I think that's one of the lessons we can learn is that uh, the goodness of God is all around us, and, but oftentimes that we might miss out on goodness, experiencing part of that goodness because we're too caught up in our own heads and our own thinking and our own value system and priorities 
and uh, sometimes the greatest lesson can come from the most uh, least esteemed among us. Years ago, Sandra and I had a, a family member that married uh, a member of a local church, church she grew up in, Northport Church of God. And this, this guy kind of had a, uh, his, his social skills were a little bit lacking. And uh, he seemed to be a pretty simple guy. And uh, but he, as we hung out with him at, you know, family dinners and stuff, and I listened to him talk. I, I kind of liked him. I was, felt like uh, he had, you know, he was a good guy. You know, he had a good heart, and I said, could see why him and Sanders' aunt were drawn together. And one day, as I was reading scripture, and we come to that scripture, it talks about. Uh, the least among you, uh, the last shall be first, and first will be last. And then the, another place it talks about the least among you. Go to the least among you when you're searching for the answer. And uh, the Lord just brought him to my mind. And I thought, wow. Uh, how many times do we miss even wisdom and understanding because we ignore the source the Lord chooses to use. Um, <clears throat> I forgot to use one of my cute little uh, terms here I found in studying and that was that when Naaman was told to go back to Judea he realized that Elijah was not in his preferred provider network. So. <laughs> I got to go back and put that in. Uh, <clears throat> the uh, in the canonizing of Scripture, the some of the writings that were being considered to be included in the canon ended up being rejected. And I I won't read this quote. It says the Gnostic Gospels were rejected because of spiritual elitism. The idea that only some people were special and chosen to undergo impressive esoteric spiritual teaching and become enlightened. That's foundationally not Christian. Because Christianity is about story and water and bread and wine. Things that are offensively common. Showing up in life, sharing stories, being the stranger welcoming the stranger, breaking bread, swimming in rivers. Thus, the goodness of God. In the New Testament reading, Paul's instructions to Timothy in uh, second, the second letter, 2 second Timothy, and uh, in the middle of chapter 2, he begins to... Uh, shift gears and talk more personally to Timothy he said remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead the offspring of David is preached in my gospel for which I am suffering bound with chains as a criminal 
But the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Remind them of these things, and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruin, ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Uh, those two short paragraphs that could be uh, could be one paragraph uh, contain so much and is so speaks to me uh, he he starts out by focusing on re, uh, turning Timothy to focus back on the one thing remember Jesus Christ remember the gospel what is the gospel the gospel is that Jesus died, was raised from the dead, and is alive and is coming back. The gospel is that our hope is in Christ and the work that he completed on the cross. And everything else is to flow out of this grace. The, in the instructions to Timothy, he talks about the word of God not being bound as... as Paul was at that time being bound in chains. He talks about the uh, the summation of the gospel in, in that if even when we are faithless, he remains faithful. That's wonderful news. That that uh, I think it. Paul, I think Paul Tripp is the one that wrote the book. The pressures. No, it wasn't. It was Larry Crabb. Larry Crabb wrote a book called The Pressures Off. And, uh, and that's that's the good news. The pressure is off. It's not up to us. Even if we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. And then he goes on and says, he says, remind them that would be the people that Timothy is is over as he becomes a leader in the church. Remind them of these things. Charge them not to quarrel about words. Wow. Hmm. That hurts. Um, then he goes on to say to, uh, to not be ashamed to present yourself to, before God as one approved rightly handling the word of truth. So we're to press in to the word in search of truth but we're not to quarrel about words uh, yeah it sounds just like the church today doesn't it uh, it's so challenging to try to 
to uh, make all of this fit together to kind of gel it down and to uh, you know a rule of life or, or a to-do list or anything like that it's just I mean I know there's no question we're to always seek more light and more truth that we're to always remember that we are seeing through a glass darkly and regardless of disagreements, especially within the body of Christ, we're to treat, treat all people with honor and with respect. So we are not to fight over words. The truth we're given, we should be able to present it in love and long-suffering and do it without attacking or undermining the motives of the opposing views. I mean obviously there's essentials there's foundational truths that we have to hold firmly to but all other ideas and concepts we should hold loosely to and and accept the reality that they may or may not be true they may have a degree of truth and the degree of truth may be greater it may be minor lesser we're to always look for consensus, especially for the consensus down through the ages, and that will that will help us identify those essential foundational truths that are non-negotiable. We are to be very prayerful as we study, as we study the Word, as we study what others have gleaned from the Word, what the insights they have received hopefully by the work of the Holy Spirit in their life, but always recognizing that <clears throat> within us and others, the, spirit, the, uh, the enemy is always at work to deceive and to, to cause us to uh, confuse uh, human ideas of the flesh with the things that would, uh, would be enlightenment from the truth. So we're to, to study in humility and with compassion toward others, always seeking the goal, the goal of, of increasing the trust in the one who began the good work in us that will complete it until it is finished, of remembering the goal that we have of finishing the fight, of of uh, preaching the truth with power and love. One writer thought that that particular phrase, uh, rightly handling the word of truth, might, there's one of the analogies that stuck with me was plow a straight row. And I've never plowed a row in my life, but uh, I've read about it, and I've read that a good farmer learns in a in a field. Uh, you know, a field is an open an area where all landmarks have been removed. It's just flat land or rolling land at best. Uh, but to pick pick a landmark far ahead and set the plow toward that landmark and keep your eye on the that post or tree or <clears throat> rock and uh, that way you'll be able to plow a straight line so in, in approaching scripture we need to keep 
that uh, that landmark is Christ. It's it's the the best and clearest revelation of who of who God is and what He's like is the incarnate Christ and the the Gospels and New Testament that tell us what He said and did during His earthly ministry. The God, the uh, New Testament reading stopped at I think verse. 15, but if you read on a few verses, verse 19 says, this is in 2 Timothy chapter 2, says, But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. <laughs> the Lord knows those who are His. Wow. That is the goodness of God. God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are His. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. So, Mal <clears throat> on the Fever summed it up with love God, hate sin, which is also from the Psalms. In the Gospel reading, we, leprosy shows up again. Jesus meets the twelve lepers. And... Uh, They cry out to him for mercy, as we often read about. People came to the Lord and recognized him as the Messiah, and and cried out for for mercy, for healing, and and every case that I can think of where somebody asked the Lord, He healed them. I know there's a. Scripture too it talks about certain times when he was not able to heal very many because of their lack of faith. <clears throat> but it's interesting that we're never given an example of that. All the examples we have are the examples where he, he healed people. Uh, so he, he did, he healed the twelve lepers and then of course only one came back to give thanks and there's a whole other sermon in there but we won't go into it today. But it's, what came to my mind, it, and I had to look this up, of course, um, was I knew there was something about healing lepers somewhere in the Gospels. And it's, it's in the charge that Jesus gives the twelve apostles. On the, I think it's the first time he sent out the twelve. Because then he sent out twelve and then he sent out seventy, something like that. But in Matthew chapter 10, verse 5, it says, These twelve Jesus sent out instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is a hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. <clears throat> So uh, 
that was the charge that God gave that I'm sorry that Christ that Jesus gave to the twelve apostles and sending them out in the first mission trip they took out into the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So there's something about the dreaded disease. Now we, we understand through the work of science today that leprosy is not what it was believed to be through all the centuries. It was thought to be highly contagious. It's not contagious at all, right? Um, it's it's uh, not even not a it's not the, like the flesh eating or you know algae that they sometimes read about on the, in the Gulf uh, that causes all the paranoid people to get more paranoid. But uh, it's a nerve disease where people lose loss of feeling, and because of their loss of feeling, they uh, injure themselves or get sores and. They can't feel it, so they don't take anything to take care of it, and it ends up causing gangrene to set in. So anyway, it's interesting that in the uh, when he the the particular uh, items that made the gospel in his charge was to heal the sick, to raise the dead, to cleanse lepers, and to cast out demons. These are all, uh, of course, supernatural things. Uh, there are things that would be highly, <laughs> highly desired if you had lost a loved one who had just died. You're about to have a funeral and the, somebody comes along and he raises him from the dead. That'd be pretty awesome, wouldn't it? If, you're, uh, if you yourself were extremely sick and dying and somebody, the shadow of an apostle walks by and you're suddenly healed and perfectly well, uh, paralyzed for life and you can suddenly jump and run and dance. Uh, we sang a song this morning that said I feel like dancing and it brought back memories. Uh, there were times in church where I felt like dancing and I did dance. It's been a few years. I was a lot younger and a few pounds lighter. Uh, but sometimes I'm dancing on the inside. And it may break out one day, so don't be too surprised. Our psalm today, Psalm 111, that starts out, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart, and the company of the upright and the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord. The works of the Lord are the result of His goodness. So the goodness of God in the... In the uh, Call it, we pray that the Lord's grace may always precede us and follow us. So if the grace of God goes before us and comes after us, uh, we're obviously surrounded by His grace, which is what we pray for, that we would just be enveloped in, baptized in His grace, uh, that we may be continually given to good works, not Again, not works based on law, but works based on grace. So where is the goodness of God? God, the creator of all that is, the one who spoke and from out of nothing created all that is or ever will be. He is infinite. As created beings, we'll never know him in his totality. 
But we do know this, He is good. He is beautiful. He is truth. He, he is not a man that he could, should lie. He created us in his image. We are, in some ways, little icons of God. He has come to us in Jesus Christ, being fully God and fully man. We know that no man can see the face of God, but yet we have... Jesus said, if we have seen Christ, we have seen the Father. Jesus, therefore, must be the most complete revelation to us of who God is and what God is like. Jesus is the Word made flesh. The Holy Spirit worked through men to inspire, to inspire Scripture that reveals God's story and his salvation to us. That's the goodness of God. Je Jesus is more than just the sum of words, but yet he uses words to reveal who he is. We are to approach the study of the written word while praying for the Holy Spirit to teach us, to reveal truth that will produce greater love in us. This is the goodness of God. We don't have to worry or fret. We cannot screw this up. It's all grace. Just one glimpse of our eyes in the direction of the Father makes his heart beat faster. That's what it's that's the analogy used in the Song of Solomon describing the love between Christ and the church. The word of God was given to the church. The body of Christ. The body of Christ is to receive it and preach it to the world. It, I don't think it's really for private interpretation. I know that we are to study it privately and individually, but we're to interpret it within the community of believers, not as an individual, isolated. Me and the, me and the Holy Spirit is not a reliable guide for solid doctrine, as we well know from history, over and over and over again. The words of Scripture, when used by the Holy Spirit, produces transformation from darkness to light, from self-centeredness to compassion, from seeking justice for past hurts and wrongs to forgiveness. That is the goodness of God at work in us. At the start of his earthly ministry, after getting off to a pretty remarkable start, because it says, uh, I think this is, I didn't write the reference down. It's verse 15, wherever it is. He taught in their synagogues, being glorified. By, this is in Luke chapter 4. He taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And it's what the ESV says. The New American Standard, the, the anointed version of Scripture says, <laughs> he was praised by all. That, that was the initial description of Jesus' teaching ministry. But the next sentence, he goes into the synagogue and Nazareth on the Sabbath stands up to read from the scroll of Isaiah. After reading the scriptures, he uses the story of Elijah healing Naaman as one of several examples that undermine the elitism held so dearly by the scribes and Pharisees and lawyers. And the reaction was not pretty. In Luke 4.27, it says, this is, 
where Jesus says, There were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all, not just a few, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. They rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of a hill on which the town was built so they could throw him down the cliff. They were ready to kill him. But at that moment, he passed through their mist and went away. Studying scripture is a dangerous thing, but it's a necessary thing. May we always be open to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church, trusting in the work of Christ completed on the cross and then in the witness of all who have gone before us. Years ago, I came across a prayer book called A, Di a Diary of Private Prayer by John Bailey. And one of the prayers in there, I took the liberty to slightly improvise and uh, so this is my version of oh you who were and are and are to come I thank you that this Christian way in which I walk is no untried or uncharted road but a road beaten hard by the footsteps of saints apostles prophets and martyrs I thank you for the signpost and danger signals with which it is marked at every turn and which may be known to me through the study of the Bible and all of history and the testimony of all the saints. Amen. Let's stand together and pro proclaim our common faith in the Nicene Creed.